0: Okay, so we're back again. Can you believe it already? It's time for another episode of the Urantia Radio Podcast. And I just want to remind you again that if you aren't familiar with the story, and it's because I was watching it earlier on the History Channel, uh, William Kellogg, the, the founder of all of the Kellogg cereal, uh, his grandson um, is the one who was friends with Dr. Sadler. And who were a part of the early contact commission. So every time you have a bowl of cereal, uh, you know, just remember just how influential the Kelloggs were uh, in not only in the general public, but also in participating in the not so well known story of them bringing in the revelation, bringing the revelation to us. So. And that was Wilfred Kellogg, by the way. So anyway, how are you? Hope you're doing all right. Uh, it's been a busy week we're all still dealing with the coronavirus and lockdowns and presidents and politics and everything else that we're having to deal with it, you know uh, most of the time m- most of the news doesn't bother me I think the things that probably concern most of us is just the instability um we we all want to get back to normal in our own lives mostly and 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 That's frustrating because you have so many different people telling you what to do and how to behave and what to wear and when to wear it. It's caused a lot of division between people. And uh, it has no doubt had an impact on the world in general because the economic disaster that we are facing now and most of the people in the middle and the upper class of Europe and America and elsewhere, the more modern civilizations, aren't going to be as impacted as will the poorest of the poor. And by the way, the uh, group that I support on this podcast, which I told you about a couple of podcasts ago, is this group that is doing a lot of good work and they are simply teaching young girls in places like Bangladesh and India and Pakistan, how to read. Simple. Give them the ability to read, and that young child has a good chance of making it in the world, particularly if she's a girl in rural India. And the organization is run by folks like Jerry Johnson, Mark Bloomfield, Robert Conrad, and the late Sue Tennant was involved, and these are all Urantia book readers. And they are involved in the World Literacy Program. And the name of their organization, you can find out everything you want, is freeschools.org. And so what happens is every time my Urantia book podcast is downloaded, it generates a little bit of revenue, just enough to keep it going. Every month, from the fees of the website and all that. Uh, And so what I'm going to do is anything and above and excess of that is going to go straight to Jerry Johnson at the end of the year of this year. So we've got a few months, but freeschools.org. If you want to help some Urantia book readers who are putting words into action and doing something fantastic, then go to, you don't have to do anything, just share this podcast. You've already done something. Isn't that Amazing. You listening to this podcast is actually helping freeschools.org. Pretty cool, huh? That's technology for you. Anyway, so last time we talked a little bit about family in the podcast, and uh, I was really just, again, when I turn on the TV and I hear some of the things that are going on in our schools and, and in politics, just the way that people are behaving with one another, the cancel culture, Things get, you know, things that were said decades ago are now under review and scrutiny. It just seems like, uh, it just seems like the children haven't grown up. And it amazes me every day. It amazes me every day how little people really think about what the Orancho Revelators call the inner world. We're all consumed by the outer world. And I'm, and I'm just as guilty, truly. We're all with our, you know, smartphones, watching TV, looking at the little screen, looking at the big screen. I mean, I have to force myself to go. We have one room in our house which doesn't have a TV. I unplug the Amazon Echo because I just decided I didn't want that temptation. And the only thing you can do in that room is look out the window, read a book, or stare at the wall. And that's it. And I want it that way. My wife and I wanted a room where we could go to, where we could just be and not be distracted. And uh, that's often the best room for prayer and meditation because I've set up a little area where I can be completely comfortable. And it helps when you have, it's just a very tranquil space. So, But, you know, I think about the fact that, you know, none of us really, have been taught prayer. We don't even know what prayer does. We have no idea what prayer does. We think we know because we maybe heard about it. I don't know, maybe did did your parents actually teach you how to pray? My parents didn't teach me how to pray. My parents didn't even tell me that prayer was effective. It was just a function like, oh, pray for me. Or say your prayers, thank you, Father, for the food. And there was no emotional or even a spiritual connection to the notion that the prayer was being heard because I was always told that, you know, first of all, I figure God's a pretty busy, you know, individual to begin with. And my whole life is why would I, what is going on in my life that is so important that I need to take it to the big man upstairs? When I go to work, you know, unless it's really important, I'm not going to bother the boss because my feeling is he expects me to handle it. And if I can't handle it, absolutely, and everything has been exhausted, great. Go to the boss. And at that point, you know, the boss is going to be helpful. And and that's sort of how I always thought of God. You know, because I don't believe that God wants us to worship him just so he can feel good about us worshiping him. I just don't buy that. I never did. Did you? Do you think that when we get to heaven, that we're just going to sit around and worship God and that's it? And we're not going to do anything. We're going to be in this eternal oneness bliss. I mean, that's just childish. Even the Arantia book says that's just fanciful. It's just childish. You know, you know that's not the. We got a lot of work to do. You know, not only do we have to settle this age and light and life by having all seven super universes get to that stage where the supreme being emergence emerges, but then there's all these other galaxies that are coming into, you know, into play right now, even as we speak. Where they say three hundred seventy-five thousand. There's there's seven seventy thousand galaxies now 70,000 that's like there's seven super universes in our local region of creation there are 70,000 being coming into the formation That the number is just beyond understanding so there's going to be a lot of work and we're not all going to be sitting around having pudding and worshiping God all the time I just you know so anyway back to prayer Let's get back to the prayer subject. So what is prayer? Well, so I'm going to pretend for a moment that I have your undivided attention, and today's class is on prayer. And I'm going to integrate and I'm going to read from paper 91, which is all about prayer. And it is sponsored, by the way, by a chief midwayer of Urantia. And it's the only paper outside of the midwayer commission that brought us the fourth section of the book the life and teachings of Jesus. This is exclusively written by the chief of the Urantia. It's either the seraphim or the midwares. Let me look. It is the chief of the Urantia midwares. Now midwares, as we've talked about, are our earth cousins. They are actually the true, I don't want to say the indigenous. They are the permanent citizens of our fair world. They work with us. Sometimes, they can manipulate the environment a little bit. Sometimes you don't know they're there, but you have that feeling. Remember in that movie, The Sixth Sense, where the little kid says, you ever feel like there's somebody standing behind you? Well, that could be a midwear. There are 1111 of them, and they are what remains, and they are known as the United Midwares of Urantia, and they're a wonderful group of beings, and they have been here continuously, now stretching back. Well, the first group stretching back a half a million years and then the secondary midwares who were the offspring of of Adam and Eve if you remember your your ancient history so they are really literally the spiritual sons and I won't say sons and daughters but I guess you could say sons and daughters uh, of our world and of, of Adam and Eve and they're just halfway between mortal and spiritual that's why they're called midwares And they are the custodians of this world. So this chief of this group uh, talks about the evolution of prayer. And again, operating under the assumption that we don't really have any formal classes for this, this may be an introduction to many people about things about prayer you never even knew. So why don't we just take about a 40-second break We'll come back, and then we'll start studying paper 91. And, uh, and I think you're going to really love it. So st- st- stay tuned. about when we talk about prayer is that it's a very personal thing. Uh, I used to pray, uh, as many people do, we all know instinctively, uh, I think on some level, know how to pray. So this information is really just about how we've learned to pray and the, and the, the social custom of praying and how to get the most out of praying and what praying does for us. So the Revelator writes The first prayers were merely verbalized wishes, the expression of sincere desires. Prayer next became a technique of achieving spirit cooperation, and then it attained to the higher function of assisting religion in the conservation of all worthwhile values. Both prayer and magic arose as a result of man's adjustive reactions to the environment. But aside from this generalized relationship, they have little in common. Prayer has always indicated positive action by the praying ego. It has always been psychic and sometimes spiritual. Magic has usually signified an attempt to manipulate reality without affecting the ego of the manipulator, the practitioner of magic. Despite their independent origins, magic and prayer often have been interrelated in their later stages of, of development. Magic has sometimes ascended by goal elevation. From formulas through rituals and incantations to the threshold of true prayer. And prayer has sometimes become so materialistic that it has degenerated into a pseudo magical technique of avoiding the expenditure of that effort which is requisite for the solution of Urantian or world problems. When men learned that prayer could not coerce the gods, then it became more of a petition favor-asking, but the truest prayer is in reality a communion between man and his Maker. The appearance of the sacrifice idea in any religion unfailingly detracts from the higher efficacy of true prayer, in that men seek to substitute the offerings of material possessions for the offering of their own consecrated wills, to the doing of the will of God. When religion is divested of a personal God, Its prayers translate to the levels of theology and philosophy. When the highest God concept of a religion is that of an impersonal deity, such as in pantheistic idealism, although affording the basis for certain forms of mystic communion, it proves fatal to the potency of true prayer, which always stands for man's communion with a personal and superior being. That's interesting because many people who not necessarily believe in God or even have had any kind of relationship with deity will pray and they'll, they'll, sub, you know, they'll submit a petition. But what this is saying is that true prayer is most effective when it's a personal experience that you're communing with a personal and superior being. During the earlier times of racial evolution and even at the present time, in the day-by-day experience of the average mortal, prayer is very much a phenomena of man's intercourse with his own subconscious. But there is also a domain of prayer, wherein the intellectually alert and spiritually progressing individual attains more or less contact with the super-conscious levels of the human mind, the domain of the indwelling thought adjuster, the Spirit of God. In addition, there is a definite spiritual phase of true prayer which concerns its reception and recognition by the spiritual forces of the universe and which is entirely distinct from all human and intellectual association. Prayer contributes greatly to the development of the religious sentiment of an evolving human mind. It is a mighty influence working to prevent isolation of personality prayer represents one technique associated with the natural religions of racial evolution which also forms a part of the experiential values of the highest religions of ethical excellence the religions of revelation and so that is saying so many things chief among them is that it seems to prayer act almost acts like a key that gets you to that that superconscious level where you have just a little bit of access so much so that you're actually preventing your isolation as a personality from the universe around you right so it says here in the, in the very beginning of this segment that remember that prayer is our is a reaction it's a result of men's adjustive reactions to the environment around us Prayer represents one technique associated with natural religions of racial evolution, which also forms a part of the experiential values of the higher religions of ethical excellence. And what is that? Revelation. So prayer can sometimes allow you to see things with the spiritual mind, know things with the spiritual mind that you can't otherwise see with just the physical eyes and the conscious thinking. So this is taking us a little bit farther. It allows you, the individual, through prayer, personal prayer, to reach up. And it allows the spiritual universe to reach down and touch you. So, section three, prayer and the alter ego. Children, when first learning to make use of language, are prone to think out loud, to express their thoughts and words, even if no one is present to hear them. I still do that. With the dawn of creative imagination, they evince a tendency to converse with imaginary companions. In this way, a budding ego seeks to hold communion with a fictitious alter ego. Do you ever have a child that did that? Had a special friend? By this technique, the child early learns to convert his monologue conversations into pseudo-dialogues in which this alter ego makes replies to his verbal thinking and wish expression. Very much of an adult's thinking is mentally carried on in conversational form. That's pretty interesting. You know, I, I have no idea how other people think. I have I have no absolutely no experience in how other people think. I wonder sometimes how other people think and what their thought process, and I assume that most of the time there's not a lot of activity, that, that people are just sort of in automatic function. So that's an interesting insight. That this uh, seraphim offers, or not in seraphim, but midware, offers in, in the fact that, you know, we still sort of talk this way in our heads with each other, like we're having a conversation with somebody else, right? Continuing on, the early and primitive form of prayer was much like the semi magical recitations of the present day Tota tribe, prayers that were not addressed to anyone in particular. But such techniques of praying tend to evolve into the dialogue type of communication by the emergence of the idea of an alter ego. In time, the alter ego concept is exalted to a superior status of divine dignity, and prayer as an agency of religion has appeared. Through many phases and during long ages, this primitive type of praying is destined to evolve before attaining the level of intelligent and truly ethical prayer. And think about that, because when Andon and Fonda, the first humans that were able to worship and and have wisdom, that was sort of what triggered their differentiation, the fact that they had that ability finally to ask something outside of themselves what to do. As it is conceived by successive generations of praying mortals, the alter ego evolves up through ghosts, fetishes, and spirits to polytheistic gods and eventually to the One God, a divine being embodying the highest ideals and the loftiest aspirations of the praying ego. And thus does prayer function as the most potent agency of religion and the con- un- conservation of the highest values and ideals of those who pray. From the moment of the conceiving of an alter ego to the appearance of the concept of a divine and heavenly father, prayer is always a socializing, moralizing, and spiritualizing practice. Isn't that interesting? This simple prayer of faith evidences a mighty evolution in human experience whereby the ancient conversations with the fictitious symbol of the alter ego of primitive religion has become exalted to the level of communion with the Spirit of the Infinite, to that of a bona fide consciousness of the reality of the eternal God and Paradise Father of all intelligent creation. Aside from all that is super-self in the experience of praying, it should be remembered that ethical prayer is a splendid way to elevate one's ego and reinforce the self for better living and higher attainment. It's like getting a, a a tune up, isn't it? Like when you're praying, you're actually like you're like giving your brain a bath, you know, it's like you're giving your whole consciousness just this 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 refreshing dip in the in the spiritual pool. And it sort of cleans off all the dust and everything that you that you've accumulated, right? And it says, prayer induces the human ego to look both ways for help, for material aid to the subconscious reservoir of mortal experience, for inspiration and guidance to the superconscious borders of the contact of the material with the spiritual, with the mystery monitor. And the mystery monitor, we know, is the thought adjuster. And and, and simply put, it is the light of God in us. It is the spiritual fragment of the Father. Prayer ever has have been has been and ever will be a twofold human experience, a psychological procedure interassociated with a spiritual technique, and these two functions of prayer could never be fully separated. Enlightened prayer must recognize not only an external and personal God, but also an internal and impersonal divinity, the indwelling adjuster. It is altogether fitting that man when he prays should strive to grasp the concept of the universal father on paradise but the more effective technique for most practical purposes will be to revert to the concept of a nearby alter ego just as the primitive man tended to do and then to recognize that the idea of this alter ego has evolved from a mere fiction to the truth of God's indwelling mortal man and the factual presence of the Adjuster, so that man can talk face-to-face, as it were, with the real and genuine and divine alter ego that indwells him and is the very presence and essence of the living God, the Universal Father. And this reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody who was Catholic, and they were explaining to me, and I'm not sure how the conversation came about, but we were we were talking about uh, religion, religion, And this person said to me, you know, I don't understand God. I I look up at the sky and I see, wow, that, that is all God. And it occurred to me when this person said this, that they didn't recognize that God was also in them. And I think that is what this is saying, is when we pray, it's okay and it's fitting that we pray to our Father in heaven, which is what we do, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? But it's, it's even more rewarding when you realize that you're praying to that divine mystery monitor that is in you that is of God. So you are actually praying and it, there is a facilitation where you are actually face to face. You are in partnership with that divine perfect being that someday will unite with you. And you will be a, be a part of, and that's what I think that the, the seraphim chief is saying is that you know you can pray to God out there, or you can pray to God who is actually in you. Read on a little bit further. No prayer, and this is on ethical praying. No prayer can be ethical when the petitioner seeks for selfish advantage over his fellows. Selfish and materialistic praying is incompatible with the ethical religion religions which are predicated on unselfish and divine love. All such unethical prayer, praying reverts to the primitive levels of pseudo-magic. It is unworthy of advancing civilizations and enlightened religions. Selfish praying transgresses the spirit of all ethics founded on loving justice. You know, To me it sounds like what they're saying is when you're praying for selfish reasons you're, you're short-circuiting your own prayer. Moving on to the social repercussions of prayer, this from paper 91, section 5. In ancestor worship, prayer leads to the cultivation of ancestral ideals, but prayer, as a feature of deity worship, transcends all other such practices, since it leads to the cultivation of divine ideals. As the concept of the alter ego of prayer becomes supreme and divine, so are man's ideals accordingly elevated from the mere human towards supernal and divine levels. And the result of all such praying is the enhancement of human character and the profound unification of of human personality. But prayer need not always be individual. Group or congressional praying is very effective in that it is highly socializing in its repercussions. When a group engages in community prayer for moral enhancement and spiritual uplift. Such devotions are reactive upon the individuals composing the group. They are all made better because of participation. Even a whole city or an entire nation can be helped by such prayer devotions. Confession, repentance, and prayer have led individuals, cities, nations, and whole races to mighty efforts of reform and courageous deeds of valorous achievement. If you truly desire to overcome the habit of criticizing some friend, the quickest and surest way of achieving such a change of attitude is to establish the habit of praying for that person every day of your life. But the social repercussions of such prayers are dependent largely on two conditions. Number one, the person who is prayed for should know that they're being prayed for. Number two, the person who prays should come into intimate social contact with the person for whom he is praying. Ooh, that's a tough nut, right? That's a tough one. This is one of the few, I would say one of the few times where there's actually specific information that's given to us, the reader and this coming from someone who knows a thing or two about living here in our world. Prayer is the technique whereby sooner or later every religion becomes institutionalized. And in time, prayer becomes associated with numerous secondary agencies, some helpful, others decidedly deleterious, such as priests, holy books, worship rituals, and ceremonials. Interesting, right? Interesting that he makes that claim. But some uh, techniques, prayer is a technique that helps religions become institutionalized and that's where the priests and the holy books and the rituals and ceremonials all arise from. They become, in many ways, an outgrowth of the original prayer. But the minds of greater spiritual illumination should be patient with and tolerant of those less endowed intellects that crave symbolism for the mobilization of their feeble spiritual insight. The strong must not look with disdain upon the weak. Those who are God-conscious without symbolism must not deny the grace ministry of the symbol to those who find it difficult to worship deity and to revere truth, beauty, and goodness without form and ritual. I'll read that again just because it's such a good sentence. Those who are God conscious without symbolism must not deny the grace ministry of the symbol to those who find it difficult to worship deity and to revere truth, beauty, and goodness without form and ritual. In prayerful worship, most mortals envision some symbol of the object goal of their devotions. Fair enough. And then there's two, more, uh, two or three more sections of this, and I, and I want to encourage you to finish reading this because at the very end of it, it, it again gives you the what turn out to be seven conditions of effective prayer. And I want you to make that a personal experience if you have time, and perhaps on another day. And I think I have actually uh, covered this particular subject. But if you turn to paper 91, and the very last section on conditions of effective prayer, there you'll find seven real good pieces of advice. And now we know a lot more about you know the whole thing of, of the value of, of prayer to the individual as well as to the community. And it apparently is very effective. Again, it's always good to share this stuff with you and I'll look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, I'm always a click away. If you've got a question or if you've got a subject or a topic you want me to bring up or even just a simple comment, your book radio at gmail.com urantia at gmail.com there's also a way to contact me on my website which is urantiaradio.net god bless